Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. This is Erica Slater, and today I'm joined by Amy Gunn and Elizabeth McNulty. Hey, ladies, how are you? Hello. Hi. So today, Amy and I were in the kitchen before recording this episode today, and we started discussing a recent appeal that we had this past year from a case that Amy and I tried together two years ago. And although we were successful on our appeal, there were some good lessons to be learned from the opinion. Uh, There's basically like three areas in the appeal. And quite honestly, we won and we're getting a new trial. But on the other two, the court had things to say to us about how we preserved the record. (laughs) And the good thing is they were minor points. And on the one, well, I'll explain the whole story. But on the one, the court was like, we don't think you preserved the record, but we're going to give you our ruling anyway, because you're going to have this question on the retrial. So today we want to kind of walk you through some of the lessons we've learned about appeals and most importantly, what to do. You know, your appellate record really starts probably when you file the case. But if we're being focused, obviously, you know, watching out about all your appellate issues is starting with your pretrial and how that whole record gets made leading up to the actual trial. So in our recent appeal, there was a specific issue in Missouri about how evidence of medical bills is entered. And the law changed on that within the last couple of years. And then there was an appellate decision discussing the application of that law. And it kind of got complicated regarding, you know, when your case was filed in relation to when the law changed and, and all of that. And so we... We're trying this medical malpractice case. The The application of the new law potentially applied, and we would want to argue that it didn't apply and that we got to take advantage of the old iteration of the statute. And in front of this particular judge, we had heard the way he ruled on this issue because another attorney at firm that we work closely with had tried a a medical malpractice case in front of this judge about four weeks before us. And then Amy and Liz tried the next medical malpractice case in front of that judge about about two or three weeks before our case. And then Amy jumped right back into trial with me in this medical malpractice case, all in front of the same judge. So as you can imagine, when asking the judge to rule on this issue, we were beating a dead horse. (laughs) When we went back and looked at the record, it's pretty hilarious because we're just falling over ourselves to say like, we know how you rule on this judge. We know how we... But here's our request. <laughs> for the record. It's just for the record. It's just for the record. And you can you can tell by the way that we spoke on the record of this issue that there were a lot of off-the-record discussions, you know. And I recall talking to the judge about this where it's kind of like, yeah, I know this group of attorneys knows where I fall on this. So that was, it was a minor issue that we included in the appeal, but nonetheless part of the appeal. And so... Um, When I filed our initial appeal, because it was a defense verdict initially from the trial, I included this issue and I briefed it thinking like, we're good. We have everything filed. You know, it was a motion in limine. We mentioned it on the record and, you know, we're good to go here. 
And in the response from the uh, defense counsel, they, you know, blew up like they didn't preserve the record. There's nothing they can do. And I was kind of like, now, wait a minute. <laughs> that <laughs> hurts I was a, a little bit. Yeah. So I went back and, you know, reread our 20,000 page transcript from a two week trial or whatever it ended up being and realized that, you know, we didn't they were right. We didn't perfectly preserve the record. We needed to make the objection on the record. Our motion in limine, of course, as you know, we've all heard, but have probably learned the lesson before. Our motion in limine preserved nothing. Um, and so I had to look for an alternative way to bring this up, basically an exception to the preservation rule. Now, there was one. And I thought it applied, of course, in my thunder thumbing on the keyboard. <laughs> um, and the court found that we didn't preserve the record on this issue and we were kind of out of luck. And it was a good example to us and me specifically, because I remember very much the conversation between Amy and I during trial is like, we are taxing the hell out of this judge. On because there were so many other issues. And here we have one that, you know, was extensively argued in front of him over the course of that month in two other, you know, medical malpractice trials. The law is the same. Everything about his ruling is going to be the same. And we made the strategic decision to just really pick our battles. Now, was I sitting there thinking, like, I'm not going to make a record because I don't think this is going to be a battle? No, that's not how your brain works in trial. But it was a good lesson that I will carry with me through subsequent trials of there being an artful way to say, you know, judge, I understand your ruling. Can I just have 90 seconds on the record, you know, to make, to preserve my record and we'll be done with it. And you are never going to get a no out of a judge for that. If right. You, if you put it like that. But I, what were we supposed to do to preserve that issue beyond what we already did? Yeah. So for this, it was a medical bills issue. And what we should have done is make an offer of proof. Yeah. And we should have said, and we could have even been very, you know, deferring even in the record we make. Judge, we understand your ruling. We understand you've made this ruling in several trials this month. Um, we would like to put on the record that we believe this is the correct ruling. Here's our evidence of what the medical bills without, you know, payments or charges adjusted would be. And this is the evidence that we're agreeing by stipulation to enter based on your ruling. Cause that's what we ended up doing. We went, we entered a stipulation um, for the medical bills that was in, in, conformed with the judge's ruling. And right before we gave that evidence, we could have just gone up to sidebar and said, judge, we need 20 seconds to put on the record, you know, that we have an objection. We entered this stipulation based on your ruling, yada, yada. So it wasn't that the stipulation was entered into. That was not the waiver of the issue. The waiver of the issue, according to the Court of Appeals, was we didn't do the offer of proof. Exactly. Exactly. And maybe it could have been you know, the offer of proof probably could have been extremely informal because it, it had been briefed. Yeah. And it likely would have been, you know, recalling those documents. This is the evidence. And because you're really just putting in that issue, you're putting up two different dollar amounts. Right. So it's a very easy thing to do. We wouldn't have had to put on a witness or anything else. But at the same time, there was good appellate law on that 
issue that we thought the judge was not following correctly. Right. And that was our argument and what, you know, why we didn't want him, why we didn't want to tax his patients because we were saying, you know, there is an appellate case after the law changed on point and you're not following it, which is not a great thing to be accusing a judge of. <laughs> like, I don't know. It doesn't feel that comfortable, at least not in person as opposed to my <laughs> written submission. But at the same time, it was not terrible because we certainly didn't want what we believed was the correct appellate decision to be messed with, I guess. But for our clients, we decided that it had to be brought up on appeal. So we had to include the issue. Well, and I also think that if the idea in that particular case, um, and it was, this is a very case specific issue because mm-hmm. for way of background, $100,000 was charged for the medical care, but either private insurance or government benefits paid $40,000. So we believed the current state of our law was that both numbers come in. That was based on the court of appeals decision. This particular judge believed that only the amount paid came in and thought that the reference we were making to the other court of appeals case was just dicta. So he said, nope, only the amount paid comes in. That was argued pretrial. It was briefed. The numbers were in the motion in the briefing. Um, but when it came time for trial, we just decided to, quote, stipulate as to one amount. Stipulate as to what we were able to put in as evidence. Because with medical bills and any personal injury trial, um, if you put on the evidence of the medical bills, you couldn't just throw them up on a screen and say, this is it, without an affidavit or an actual person who can testify that those are the bills. And that's tedious and such a waste of time that by and large, at least in our very friendly jurisdiction, we agree with the other side that we'll just read a stipulation because we've all crunched the numbers and we all agree those are the totals. Yes. So that's where we were on agreeing to a stipulation of what would be read as the evidence of the medical bills in the case. And they were pretty disparate um, no. numbers as far as what the high number and what the low number were. All right. And then we lose the case. The case is appealed. That issue came up on appeal. But I, I think the way I'm looking at it is we got our new trial based on a different issue. And that issue resets. Mm-hmm. And now this judge has seen the light, so to speak, <laughs> and agrees that both numbers come in. So even though we look at this appeal and it says you didn't preserve it and that kind of hurts a little bit, there's really no harm. Right. And there would have been no harm. Uh, I guess what I'm thinking, the harm could have been that the Court of Appeals agreed with the trial court's read and said, yep, nope, only the paid amount comes in. Absolutely. So not preserving the issue sort of saved us from that decision. Now, right. the reason we chose to appeal it begins because we felt real comfortable that yeah. with our position uh, to begin with and getting more clarity from the Court of Appeals to further support our position, which is that both numbers come came in was part of our thought process. But 
looking back on that, I'm thinking that turned out fine. It it did. And I fine. think you're being nice because <laughs> the good thing is, yes, we could, I could learn that lesson without having, you know, there's no penalty for learning that. But you're right. It's being able to punt on that issue because, you know, the record wasn't correctly preserved was a blessing and it will have no effect on our client. And, you know, I know there's a narrow subset of listeners who work in this issue every day, but I think one of the interesting things to any legal mind is that the Missouri legislature intended to change the rule in a way that would have excluded the evidence of the higher number. And upon a very simple and in reasonable and clear reading of the statute, it just didn't do that. Multiple it, times now. Yes. And so so the actual statute as rewritten or as amended says the evidence of the lower number is this, but it fails to say it's not that. So, <laughs> so I think it was an issue of judges knowing exactly what the spirit of the law change was and trying to be, you know, trying to interpret and apply the spirit of the law, which everyone knew what that was, because it was an important change, as opposed to diving into what is the actual letter of the law, right? which is an age-old lesson in there why we need more attorneys in any legislature, I'm sure. And just today, I learned of, because we have just started our new legislative session in Missouri, and just today I learned of a, a bill that is further messing with the collateral. It's, it's the collateral source rule, essentially, further messing with it in a way that is nuts. So like, to not be even better. <laughs> to be continued. Once I, once I take a look at that a little closer, we, we might bring it back up because it's it's fun stuff. Let's talk for just another second about offers of proof, um, because you've given us, Erica, one example of an, an offer of proof in terms of the medical records and bills. But what other situations do you find yourself in where you have to make what we call an offer of proof? I think the most common one that we've run into is, and Elizabeth, maybe you've seen this in a trial recently, when we have an expert whose opinion we want to offer and it's either been excluded, you know, in the pretrial rulings or, you know, on the spot, a judge rules, no, that's a new opinion or no, that is, you know, that opinion's not allowed for X, Y, and Z. And in that situation, when a judge is not allowing you to put evidence in front of the jury that you believe legally should be in front of the jury, in order to preserve the record, you must make an offer of proof, which is a record outside of the jury's hearing and presenting that evidence to the court. And I believe the court is allowed to vor dire is what it's called, which confuses the hell out of me because <laughs> I only think about that as choosing a jury. But that's the process by which the judge can then in inquire into the evidence or you may actually often have your expert on the stand giving the exact testimony and you're just doing, you know, your direct examination as you would, but without the jury. Right. Strictly for the record, the court reporter is still taking it down. Yes. Because what you're hoping is to preserve it for the appeal. And the appeal would be, we believe the judge improperly excluded this evidence. 
And here is this evidence. Here's the foundation for it. And here's the opinion that we believe the jury should have heard. Right. And it's all right there uh, for the Court of Appeals to review. Because if you're arguing on appeal that, hey, this evidence should have been presented, you can't characterize what it would have been, especially if it is another person's testimony under oath. Um, the medical bills issue is a little different. It, and, and it also, there's, you know, a 1% chance maybe on a good day that when the judge actually hears the evidence that has probably priorly been described by the attorneys, that the judge will say, I see how that fits in now. He or she may ask the expert their own questions outside of the jury and kind of explore any lingering issues in their mind and maybe make a different ruling. So it 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 has a twofold purpose, although most of us know we're preserving it for the record. Right. And and another way to to do an offer of proof if you don't have your expert there or frankly it's probably just easier is just to mark the deposition testimony yes. as an exhibit, give it or present it as an exhibit on your list, give it to the court reporter, mark it however, however it needs to be done. And that becomes part of the record. Mm -hmm. So then that way it's also preserved. And that's a real simple way to do it. Right. It's just funny how if you're in the moment at trial and you know, if, especially if your sidebar and the judge says, no, move on. It's just really hard to remember after that testimony is done to be like, oh, wait, I got to find these pages and lines in this deposition to attach. Now, I believe that I could do that pretty much at any time during the trial, mm -hmm. um, whether it's in my case or I think you could, if you think about it halfway through the defendant's case, oh, shoot, I forgot to offer that evidence. I think you could technically reopen your case for that minute, get that exhibit um, entered and you'd be fine. I can't imagine anybody would be terribly upset. I can't imagine the defense would object to that or that the judge wouldn't allow it. But I think the lesson is when you rest your case, think really hard about whether there's any evidence that you didn't get to present that you believe you should have and make that offer of proof. Or you could also rest your case subject to any offers of proof that you know, you think of <laughs> well, and it, the it, case is over. Yeah. And it might be, you know, hey, this expert in the defense case testified to X, which would only have been relevant if my expert got to say, you know, ABC. Yes. So but you bring up a good point. During trial, we go into a sort of psychosis. <laughs> I think our families would call it that. <laughs> That's for sure. And, you know, looking back at that trial transcript of this recent appeal we were discussing, it's kind of like, of course we know that. And of course we were thinking, like, we've discussed this enough. But quite frankly, I was so surprised to see what discussions actually made it on the record as opposed to what I remember oh, talking wow. about with the court and, you know, in open court when we weren't on the record. Mm. And the awareness, I think that comes with experience. Yeah. The more awareness you have of like, shoot, we weren't on the record when we, you know, discussed that whole issue, which would have served almost as the offer of proof if it had been on the record. But Amy, in your recent auto product liability case that 
You have mistried for the second time. Second time. Three-week case. I didn't. I you didn't. didn't. Hold on. <laughs> the jury <laughs> mistried it. Yes. 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 <laughs> um, but you, obviously a big case. Anytime you're looking at an auto product liability case, it's usually going to involve some sort of paralysis of the person who is in the car or death or, you know, just catastrophic injuries. Mm-hmm. And so there's an assumption that all parties are making that if it's a defense verdict, there's going to be an appeal. If it's a plaintiff's verdict, there's going to be an appeal. Yes. Anything absent a settlement or a high-low or something like that at the end, somebody's going to be wildly unhappy after all the work time and money that has been put into a case. So you guys have a strategy in those types of cases that we've used here, and I know that you were using for appellate purposes in that case. So after the first mistrial last May. Well, even in that case, the the trial team included a dedicated attorney to help with jury instructions and appellate issues. This trial, that lawyer sat through the entire case. The first trial, she was there for voir dire and jury selection, and then we didn't even make it to the end of that trial. But for this one, she was there the entire time helping out with jury selection, of course, but also listening carefully to all of the evidence with an eye to two things, the jury instructions and any appellate issues. And it was so helpful because, again, back to the psychosis issue, if you're constantly worried about what evidence is going on right now um, and what exhibits are being marked and just in the moment, it's not always easy to think what is going to, what is this going to look like on appeal? Is mm-hmm. the record clear? We didn't preserve anything with our motions and eliminate those types of questions. And having someone dedicated to that was so helpful, not only in terms of just taking that stress off in the moment, but just knowing that it's it's being done and done well. And then especially with respect to the jury instructions, because um, in our kinds of cases with negligence allegations or product defect allegations, there are going to be subparts to your verdict director. Negligent because of A, B, C, and D. Defective because of A, B, C, and D. Because what you think the evidence is going to be before you start, based on everything you've done and depositions, isn't always what happens in open court. And in this case, we had daily transcripts, which were very helpful. But at the same time, it's not the same as someone like jotting out, oh, there is my, there's, there, that is my defect. Mm-hmm. That is my act of negligence. And then when it comes time to argue in the jury instructions, you've got somebody who can stand up and say, you know, I've been listening the whole time. My job was to listen to what the expert said, and this is what the jury instructions should say. Um, so that was unique in terms of staffing a, a case, because a lot of times you just don't have the the people power to put one person on that job. But if you do, and you have a case like this one that uh, the damages support it, then it's a real luxury. It really is. Well, and that person has no role in front of the jury. They're probably just wondering who that person is in the gallery that shows up every day. Um, And it's uh, the fact that you know, they're holding all those checklists in their head. So like when you're sitting in an instruction conference and you get an objection, like they can't phrase it like that because although we all assume, you know, 
this fact is part of the case, it's not literally in evidence on the record. And they say, yes, it is on day two of 14 with our first expert. They said this one phrase that supports exactly what is written in this jury instruction. And, you know, without that, you just, I mean, you can do it and we have you know, that's what yeah. we do in cases, cases that don't require the staffing of a two and three week trial. But I mean, yeah, it's a real luxury. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Joan Lockwood. Anybody yes. wants to know <laughs> or to hire Joan for that role? She's excellent. Um, but what we were talking about earlier with motions in limine, you <sighs> mentioned this at the top, which was nothing is preserved. They're all interlocutory. And and not many pre-trial conferences are on the record. And that kind of makes me crazy. I mean, my opinion is every substantive motion should be on the record. Pre-trial, summary judgment, whatever, it should be on the record. Um, I know it doesn't, in terms of motions and limit, it doesn't preserve anything, but it's just helpful to have because I don't remember everything that I said or the other person said. And then afterwards, you're talking about Oh, this well, this was discussed in pretrial and no one remembers it. I mean, I think everything should I think everything should be on the record. Yeah. It's just easier. What are you worried about? I mean, just do it. But it's funny to me, I was just in a, a, a substantial argument a couple of weeks ago and I wasn't lead on it. Um, and everyone, the judge says, you want this on the record? And everybody kind of looked at each other like there was something wrong with saying yes. <laughs> and so, and I'm thinking, I'm screaming to myself, yeah, why not? But again, it wasn't my motion. So I, I just, I was like, all right, maybe I'm missing something. And it wasn't on the record. I'm sure it's gonna be fine. But I don't, that my thought is, why not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. But with motions in limine, they're oftentimes discussed and then not on the record. And at the end of the day, the judge says, okay, write up an order. And then you're looking at your opposing counsel and you have different opinions about what the judge said right. in the moment. That's the and hardest. I'm like, not that you're going to have the transcript instantaneously, but if it's truly something that is debatable, at least it does exist. It can exist. You just have to get it transcribed. So... I don't know. I, I think I've learned over the years that it's better just to put everything on the record and you don't have to argue. There's fewer things to argue about. I had a case a couple of years ago and hard fought case and very good lawyering on, I'd like to say both sides. It's definitely the other side, good lawyering. I'll give ourselves a pat on the back. Also good lawyering from us. Um, but there was this issue that came up and literally we had argued like in our motion, like this has never been granted. But it was one of these motions that we see often and like judges never grant them. And we represented that to the court. And lo and behold, in the defendant's reply to our motion where we say like these never get granted, there's a case that we had, Uh John and I had like four years before, where the rulings from the pretrial conference, um, you know, it's like the defendant's similar motion that was, you know, just a snippet of what the concept was. And then below it, it said granted, overruled, or I don't know, taken under advisement. And the rulings were just the check boxes in those oh. little, you know, in those things that we put under motions and limine. And it was so frustrating because that wasn't the ruling. You're like right. it said granted, but it, it. I recall the specific thing. It was granted as to like this very specific thing that really didn't 
touch the spirit of that motion. And John and I like lost our minds because now we had to represent to the court without and we had time to do it but we had no evidence to support what we were saying like hey i see that that little motion on that you know public filing says granted but that's not what happened in that trial and because it wasn't on the record right and i had no record to point to i you kind of stuck with it i mean i i think it, it carried the day but I recall that being like, how could you do this to us, you good lawyers who found this one needle in a haystack? <laughs> well, that goes back to never say always or never say never. Yes. It's just too easy to disprove those things. Totally. Totally. So, Elizabeth, I know that you have written a lot of appeals, especially in your first couple of years of practice. But they've been some cases that you weren't even there it was before you even started practicing that the actual trial happened, right? Right. So I've been sitting here, like all of the listeners, learning a lot this episode. <laughs> um, you guys are a wealth of knowledge. And I would like to have Joan in all of our trials. Yes, so I do not have to learn any of these things. <laughs> um, but I have had the lucky experience of drafting appellate briefs without trying any of the cases myself. So having to just read the record and the record is what I have to deal with. The thing is, is like, I have no point of reference, like, oh, wow, I really thought I made that, um, made the record clearer because all I have is the record to read through. So it's an interesting way to learn what goes on at a trial, certainly, because my first one, I think, was maybe my first or second year clerking. I did an entire appellate brief. It was in federal courts. So it was a little bit different. Um, but you certainly learn a lot about how complicated and how many moving parts there are during a trial and how important it is to preserve the record. And I think that's a good a good lesson for young lawyers because, you know, there's so much going on in a trial. And it's a good thing because a lot of times young lawyers at bigger firms are probably just sitting there. So, you know, observing. So if that's something that, you know, they want to take under and learn, and then maybe they can point that out to older attorneys involved in the trial and, you know, might score some brownie points. But it's definitely uh, a lesson you don't want to have to learn the hard way, but I'm glad to hear that in, in y'all's case, it worked out at least. So, Well, and you mentioning that, I I still live by this rule. If you want to learn how to take a deposition or, in your case, reading the record of a trial, if you want to learn how to try a case, doing an appeal mm-hmm. and going through the record or doing pretrial yourself in your own case will teach you how to take better depositions because you're going back to your depositions as evidence and you're like that's gotta be in there somewhere and you're like it's not (laughs) i'll never not i'll never not ask that question again so those kinds of experiences if you can get them especially early on like it's a slog going through some of those trial transcripts and learning a case that you didn't experience firsthand, but it does really teach you where the pitfalls are and how, you know, you kind of get the benefit of coming at it from a 30,000 foot view and things that sometimes post hoc look so obvious, you know, are missing in the record or why didn't I think of that? That psychosis just is what you're doing in trial and you're so focused on what's in front of you, which is good. It's it's hyper-focused, but also you need to have a eye to the appeal. Well, and that kind of brings us to the checklist. 
it would be nice. I don't know why I don't have one. Perhaps <laughs> we're creating one now with respect to preservation of the record. So I would say on that checklist should be put the pretrial hearing on the record. I'm going to add that to the checklist. Remember that motions in limine are interlocutory only and preserve nothing. So in your trial, whatever you have filed as a motion in limine, keep that folder out. I am the worst. If I have a folder that says motions in limine are pretrial, I close it up and put it away when the trial starts. Don't mm-hmm. do that. Yep. I also, voir dire, anything I get through, I, I put it away. Like, yay, one more thing is done. But for that pretrial, pretrial motions folder, keep that out. And before you rest your case, the best thing to do is take a look at it again. And if there's any evidence outstanding that you haven't got to present that you think you should have gotten to present, remember to offer some sort of offer of proof, whether it's a depot or records or maybe it's not precise or perfect, but it's better than nothing. Yeah. Better than nothing. And before you rest your case, um, make sure that there aren't any further offers of proof or any offers of proof to make. What else on that list? Hire Joan Lockwood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and just to wrap this up, I remember now looking back at the medical issue we were talking about, that appellate case that was in our favor. I actually looked back at the record to see how they preserved the issue on the record for which the appeal was based um, to see how it compared with ours. Yeah. And their record was beautiful, Mm. impeccable. Joan Lockwood did it. There you go. And my friend Katie Jacoby from law school, who is a wonderful appellate mind. She was on the defense side. She and another partner at her firm and literally the Judge opened the record at 8.30 on Monday morning, and the lawyers made their record on the medical bill issue for 90 seconds Yeah, because it was an issue, you know, that obviously came up at the pretrial and there was a ruling. So they just said, Judge, before you bring the jury in, this is Monday morning, first thing, before Vordaer, or maybe right after, maybe when they were starting evidence, said, let us take a moment to make this record. They did it perfectly preserved. And I was like, that does not help my case. <laughs> but shout out oh. to those very brilliant yes. and now you female know. lawyers. Let me now, we're just, now we're just going to steal that. Yes. And preserving the record, again, hearkening back to motions in limine, can be as easy as, Your Honor, I object based on our previous argument on the motion in limine. And that, I think, is enough of a hook Mm-hmm. In the moment, on the record, in front of the jury, not to say too much, but also that will bring the Court of Appeals back to the briefing on the issue. And the, I think that's good enough. And the important tale on doing that would be that the judge will reciprocate by saying, based on your previous argument, my ruling remains the same yes. or whatever. And that's the point is that the ruling has been made on the evidentiary issue during trial, yes, not at the pretrial. Yes. So I guess... The judge, he or she, will likely remember that, but it's important to prompt the judge to reiterate the ruling. Yes, I think that's right. And and what you're suggesting is if the judge says nothing in response to that, you say I. You could even say I assume your ruling is the same. Right. I agree. Any sort of a statement about that the ruling stands, or yes, this is not. You know, 
as you suspect, it's not going forward. Yes. Well, thank you, listeners, for getting in the weeds with us on appeals. I can't wait to hear from our appellate friends who (laughs) get our trial attorney a view of how to preserve our record. Uh, Thank you for joining us for another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Our new episodes come out every other Wednesday, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.